The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Once a month, I say a few words about Dharma, this practice. It's really a, just a way of talking about this path of awakening. One way to talk about the fruit of living in a wise and skillful way is that the way we relate to experience has a quality of joy. I mean, normally, for an ordinary human being, most of the time, life feels like a burden. Even good things are burdensome because we gotta not blow it or not ruin it or keep it going. And, uh, clearly that's not, you know, wouldn't be the point of spiritual practice is to be burdened by life. It's really to feel enlivened, to come alive, to feel free in experience. And then one, one way we talk about this is to, you know, as we're moving about, to learn how it's possible to freely receive whatever's happening in the moment. Instead of defending ourselves or resisting it or negotiating with the present moment, but really receiving it because it is this way. And also, it's not enough just to receive, but, you know, as a human being, we were really built to respond. So can that response in the moment be free? How we respond to each other? And so this is, you know, a nice way of just imagining, holding as an aspiration to live freely in this way. In each moment, to receive freely whatever's arising in our mind, whatever's arising in our experience, and to respond freely, fearlessly, joyfully. And so even at Common Ground, as you know, we operate this way. So uh, instead of charging for programs or having suggested donations, we thought, well, maybe we should organize the center on the same principle that the whole practice is built on. So as leaders of the organization, we practice giving everything away freely. I'm not recommending it in all aspects of life. It's okay to charge for your, you know, if you're a therapist or a carpenter or whatever. There's nothing inherently wrong. But even if you are charging, the idea is to give your work away freely, to joyfully do whatever you're engaged in doing. And then to joyfully receive. So if you're on one, you have one of those jobs where you get a check at the end of the week or the end of the month, still see that as a, a gift. And receive it. Let it be a cause for joy in the same way. And so at the center, we just ask people to join in in this practice. So when you take classes, at least from time to time, reflect on the free giving like it's a free gift and uh, no strings attached. And it, of course, comes from so many causes, all the people who contributed in the past, this great lineage of women and men who've done their practice over the years and passed it down. And then it arrives for us to receive as a free gift. And it should be a cause for joy. And if it's not, then we need to reflect, like, why? Why doesn't this make me happy to receive this freely? And then if you decide to contribute or to volunteer your time, because there are no strings attached, that's a free gift. You're doing that because you want to do it. It makes you come alive. It makes you feel free. It brings happiness. And, you know, for now almost 20 years, it'll be 20 years in September, 
Kamagar has operated this way, and it's really worked. You know, the community's been able to buy a building, to renovate it. We have uh, a number of teachers that are supported from the donations, of course, and then two office staff, people that are supported, you know, earn their living in part through their salaries that come from the contributions that people give. And, of course, just all the other expenses of an organization like this, like any other organization. So it's working pretty well doing it this way. We just need to be conscious participants in this happiness of receiving freely and contributing in a way that makes us happy. If you have any questions about this, just let me know. There is a sheet out by the donation bowl with a little bit more information. You can take a look at that if you want. And tonight I'm going to talk a little bit more about this chapter 16. Some of you know we've been looking at the book Food for the Heart by Achan Cha. It's really a collection of teachings, oral teachings that he gave that somebody recorded and then transcribed. This one's what we call in Buddhist circles a lion's roar. One, it's a very long chapter. It's called The Key to Liberation. 179 to 18. So almost 40 pages. So it takes a while to say that much. And maybe they cut some of it off. And um, he's really talking about practice. So the, the particular thing I want to emphasize tonight from these pages is Ajahn Chah's teachings on the steadiness of mind. Like a fearless, but very alive presence. Not a fearless presence meaning we're defended, but a, a very alive presence in the moment. But also an unshakable presence. It's unflappable. This is what we are interested in cultivating. And... It's very uh, enlivening, this kind of presence, this fullness, this steadiness. A lot of times when we hear a word like steady, we think, you know, yeah, that's probably healthy, but I really am not interested in steady. I'm interested in exciting, you know, I'm in danger. I'm interested in the fireworks, not in steadiness. But... When the heart, when the mind is really steady, then it, it's what allows for that unconditional love and compassion, that profound sensitivity, that great responsivity to the world. That's what the steadiness allows for. When the mind is fragmented or distracted or caught in different ways, it really isn't capable of receiving and giving freely. It's in a way it's caught in its own drama, the own its own problems that it's created through its reactive tendencies. So don't think about equanimity or steadiness or calm as being dead, which is I think part of just the way that these words have come to mean that sense of being detached or disconnected, and we associate that with calm. And it's really not correct, at least not in what we're, the work that we're doing here. The calm we're looking for, as I said, is a very enliven, enlivened flavor. And because of that, it can't arise due to forcing your mind. You can't force your mind to become calm in the way that we're trying to be calm or full 
or steady. It has to be, because it's a natural, we're looking for a natural mind, then it has, this natural mind can't be made by man or woman. It has to arise naturally. The ego, the sense of self, doesn't make this beautiful state of mind come to be. But it will come to be. It's just a matter of learning how, this is what the ego does. The ego learns how to get out of the way. So it's not correct to say that, you know, from a relative point of view, that I don't have to do anything. Because that's not practice. That's like giving up or complacency or thinking that I can't do this practice. So we need that. We need to engage fully. But the engagement isn't to try to become somebody or try to get somewhere. It's really this full engagement of uh, ceasing what's not necessary. And we have to be fully present. Even to do this work, we have to be fully present to see what needs letting go of. So I want to read a few sections from this chapter. So here's Ajahn Shah. People who study a lot, who are full of theoretical knowledge, usually don't succeed in Dharma practice. They get bogged down at the information level. And I'm skipping about. He says, personally, I didn't know much about the theory of practice. I'd been a monk for three years and still had a lot of questions about what samadhi actually was. Samadhi is the word for steadiness. or Sometimes it gets translated as concentration. Steadiness or unification of mind is a good translation. Um, a lot of questions about what samadhi actually was. I kept trying to think about it and figure it out as I, mes- as I meditated. But my mind became even more restless and distracted than it had been before. The amount of thinking actually increased. Then I wasn't meditating. When I wasn't meditating, it was more peaceful. Boy, was it difficult. So exasperating. But even though I encountered so many obstacles, I never threw in the towel. I just kept on doing it. When I wasn't trying to do anything in particular, my mind was relatively at ease. But whenever I determined to make my mind unify in samadhi, it went out of control. What's going on here, I wondered. Why is this happening? Later on, I began to realize that meditation was comparable to the process of breathing. If we're determined to force the breath to be shallow, deep, or just right, it's very difficult to do. However, if we go for a stroll and we're not even aware of when we're breathing in or out, it's extremely relaxing. So I reflected, ah, maybe that's the way it works. When a person is normally walking around in the course of the day, not focusing attention on their breath, does their breathing cause them suffering? No. They feel just fine. Relaxed. But when I sit down and bow with determination that I'm going to make my mind peaceful, clinging and attachment set in. When I tried to control the breath to be shallow or deep, it just brought more stress than I had before. Why? Because the willpower I was using was tainted with clinging and attachment. I didn't know what was going on. All that frustration and hardship was coming up because I was bringing craving into the meditation. And this is, of course, an ancient problem for us human beings. We have, in a sense, good intentions. Like we realize 
that my mind is stressed and I should do something about it, or I, I don't have good understanding and I should clarify my understanding. But generally, we only have two tools, you know, aversion and greed, and then giving up. And all three of those don't help. doesn't matter what we do with the greed. The greed itself undermines any positive effect. Same with aversion. It seems appropriate to relate to do things out of aversion and greed, but you'll see that it sets emotion stress. This is uh, comes out in a, one of the stories the Buddha told, told about getting to a point in his practice where he had a lot of frustration too. He had been doing some very serious ascetic practices, and it wasn't really leading to any deep insight. And he started to wonder, like, what the, you know, why isn't it working? And then, I don't know if it was that night when he was sleeping or just in the day, he had a memory come up of a time when he was a little boy sitting under a rose apple tree, you know, and it was some festival day. His dad and mother were like the king and queen of a small little kingdom or fiefdom in northern India. And he remembers sitting under this tree, and it was some festival day, like a spring plowing day. And parents were probably involved in ceremonial duties, and he was just there under this pleasant tree in the shade. And his mind settled into this very settled, steady, full place. Samadhi. That was balanced. And so here he is, struggling as a young man to, you know, get enlightenment, you know, and being frustrated. And uh, has this memory. And then as that memory rose in his mind, the thought arose, I wonder if that's the way. And then there was another thought. The next thought was, yes, this is the way. So this is a good, we don't need to bang our head against walls, beat ourselves up, because so many of our spiritual ancestors have done this for us, including many people in this room, we have done it for you. We have beaten ourselves up in all kinds of different ways to try to get something from our practice, only to be thoroughly convinced it doesn't work that way. So it's important when we sit down, even though it looks like we're working really hard, the effort we make is very particular. It's not the effort to attain something. It's not the effort to get rid of something. It's really an effort, a persistent effort, continuous effort at remembering this is how it is. Because it's the natural process itself. The mind is a natural process, like everything. The natural process itself has to learn what to let go of, right? So how does that natural process of the mind or heart learn how to let go? It has to see that what it's holding is red hot, and then it lets go. So that's not what we want to do. We don't want to learn through trial and error, like when the mind picks up greed and it realizes it's getting burnt and it lets go. We just want somebody to tell us what to do, you know, where to go, so that we can be safe, we can be happy. But in a way, there's no way for that to happen. All we can do is sit right in the middle of our life. In fact, like in this chapter, Ajahn Chah uses the example of planting a tree. 
there are so many conditions that will de- um, that will affect how that tree grows, how fast it grows, whether it continues to grow. But all we can do is put the tree in the ground, fertilize it, water it, keep pests away. We can't actually make it grow. We can't stretch it out, he says, or you know, demand that it grows. We can only do our part and then let go. It's the same with our meditation. That extra piece of wanting something beautiful to happen, it's counterproductive. Same with the idea, the, the doubt that says nothing is going to happen, that's also counterproductive. We don't actually, whatever our opinion is about our meditation practice, it's completely not helpful. It doesn't affect the practice. Hating our practice doesn't affect it. It won't make it happen. Thinking we're the best won't make it happen. What makes it happen is watering it and keeping the pests away, you know, and putting it in the ground, starting it. (laughs) That's what matters. And then the growing, the development of the practice, you know, the development of that steadiness and then the insight that follows from that steadiness That is going to be a natural occurrence. And for some people, it will happen relatively quickly. They'll get states of tranquility and deep insights. And other people, it will happen after a long, long time. Some people, as they start to practice, they're going to have a lot of pleasant experience. Other people, as they start to practice, are going to have a lot of unpleasant experience. You can't control this. Like how soon it unfolds and whether it's pleasant or unpleasant. This is another talk the Buddha gave where he said there are four kinds of people. Those people whose practices practice unfolds quickly and really pleasant. I haven't met too many of those. <laughs> those kind of people whose practice unfolds quickly but is very unpleasant. Those kind of people whose practice unfolds very slowly and very pleasant. And those people whose practice unfolds slowly and very unpleasant. I've met a lot of those people. <laughs> But it doesn't matter because who we're, whatever quadrant we happen to be, karmically or whatever, that's just how it is. And it always makes sense to engage the practice. You know, it doesn't make sense to avoid the practice because we imagine that we're in that fourth quadrant where things are going to unfold slowly and they'll be unpleasant. Because it's even more unpleasant and more slow if we don't do the practice. So it always makes sense to pick up the practice, to put the tree in the ground, and to do what we can, to water it, to keep it healthy. So I mentioned that we need to uh, relate to the practice as a natural process, because otherwise we bring the wrong attitude to it. There, there have been things in our life that we've been able to do with willpower. You know, we can go home tonight and maybe we're exhausted or whatever. But if there's a huge mess, let's say you have an old dog and the dog's made a mess in the house, vomited or pooped where they're not supposed to poop. You know, you can, you can use the force of will not to go to bed, but just to take care of it. You can use your anger. You can use your greed to have a, orderly place, we can make ourselves do things. So that's our tendency to force away. I mean, even when we put on our shoes, you know, we use a kind of forceful effort or when we're talking to each other sometimes, 
it's it's fine. It's like we're carrying this weight on our shoulders that maybe we don't need to be carrying. It's a very personal thing. I'm personally trying to convince you that these teachings are right. And I, I notice this in myself sometimes, like after a talk, I'll kind of catch a little reverberation of my attitude and, you know, just that sort of stridency and, um, or maybe a conversation where I was just a little off in one way or another. So we do this all the time, where we're basically relying on greed and aversion, some unwholesome state of mind to take care of business, the business of life. And if we're sensitive, if we take some time and we're sensitive, we'll notice it doesn't feel right. And this is especially true with our Dharma practice, this awakening process. It just won't work unless the motivation is pure. Unless the way that we approach the practice is wise. And it's like this chicken and egg thing. How can I approach my practice with wisdom when the reason I'm practicing is that I'm not wise and I want to become wise? You see? So this is the problem we're in. But it doesn't matter. It won't work unless we do our practice with wisdom. We won't gain wisdom. We won't gain this deepening, this awakening this freedom, this compassion, unless we enter, begin the practice with some wisdom. So fortunately, it's relatively easy for us because we have some instructions. You know, there are people who have done their practice and have had real insight and have sort of laid out a a roadmap for us. And one of the things they say is, it's a natural process. It unfolds naturally. One of the real insights in practice that arises often on retreat, but can can also arise just in daily life, when you have some momentum in your mindfulness practice. And you'll see that the mindfulness happens on its own. Initially, it feels like I have to be really attentive. I have to be really Effortful, persistent in order to maintain my mindfulness. And if I get forgetful, it goes away. But there will arise for all of us at different times an experience where there's mindfulness, a very steady, continuous mindfulness, but there's very clearly nobody trying to do the mindfulness. And then it's like a very powerful insight where the mind realizes, oh, This is a natural occurrence. I don't have to imagine. I don't have to construct the sense I'm doing this. That's extra. So right now, in order to be mindful, my mind often has to construct the sense I'm doing it. I think for the last 10 years, 15 years, I've really been working hard at undoing or letting go of that extra thing. So instead of doing the mindfulness, trusting the knowing. Knowing is already happening, but it's a real leap of faith just to trust it. It seems so much more appropriate for me to generate the mindfulness. Like, like, i got to do it. It's like some of you are in relationships, and it feels like I have to be the partner to my partner. But what happens if we don't do that? Do we all of a sudden stop being a partner to our partner? Maybe that relationship is also a natural occurrence. 
maybe getting up tomorrow morning and doing Monday could also be a natural occurrence. So much of our life we think we have to do. So when we sit down and meditate, you know, even though it's sort of formal, we've got a formal posture, you know, probably at home you have a specific place you practice, you do your practice, a little corner of one of your rooms where you've uncluttered it and put a comfortable chair, an upright chair or cushion, meditation cushion. Maybe you put up an altar or just have a few things that make the place feel tranquil. And you sit down and it feels like, okay, now now's the time to really do it. But instead of that attitude, we can have a different attitude. Let me read a little from Ajahn Chah. He talks about this. If I can find that place. For example... We sit down cross-legged with determination and resolve. All right, no pussyfooting around this time. I will concentrate the mind. Just watch me. No way that approach will work. Every time I tried that, my meditation got nowhere. But we love the bravado. From what I've observed, meditation, uh, from what I've observed, meditation will develop at its own rate. Many evenings I sat down to meditate. I thought to myself, all right, Tonight I won't budge from the spot until at least 1 a.m. Even with this thought, I was already making some bad karma, because it wasn't long before the pain in my body attacked from all sides, overwhelming me until it felt like I was going to die. However, those occasions when the meditation went well were times when I didn't place any limits on the sitting. I didn't set a goal of 7, 8, 9, or whatever, but simply kept sitting, steadily carrying on. Letting go with equanimity. Don't force the meditation. Don't attempt to interpret what's happening. Don't coerce your heart with unrealistic demands that it enter a state of samadhi, or else you'll find it even more agitated and unpredictable than normal. Just allow the heart and mind to relax, to be comfortable and at ease. Allow the breathing to flow easily at just the right pace, neither too short nor too long. Don't try to make it into anything special. Let the body relax, comfortable and at ease. Then keep doing it. Your mind will ask you, how late are we going to meditate tonight? What time are we going to quit? It incessantly nags, so you have to bellow out a reprimand. Listen, buddy, just leave me alone. This inquisitive busybody needs to be regularly subdued because it's nothing other than defilement coming to annoy you. Don't pay it any attention, any mind whatsoever. You have to be tough with it. Whether I, uh, whether I call it quits early or have a late night, it's none of your damn business, he says. So you might have a slightly different voice than Ajahn Shah. But the point is, As we understand the value of this natural process and, and are learning to give ourselves over to it, doubt is going to arise. Like, you know, maybe it's not happening as fast as we think it should happen. So that's the cause for doubt. Or maybe, you know, we're sleepy and that's the cause for doubt. Or whatever. 
mind is restless, and that's the cause for doubt. It always feels right to bring out the big guns, whatever they are, and it's different depending on your personality. Your big guns might be some strong feelings of being unworthy. I never do anything right. Or to blame, you know. This is the worst Dharma center in town. I, sh- I should have gone to this other place. But this was in the neighborhood. And so if your way of bringing out the big guns is to blame or complain or to blame yourself, to be feel unworthy or to hate yourself or whatever it might be, that's what we have to be, you know, in terms of effort, it's the effort not to be fooled by those voices. That's just a voice. That's just a thought. It's just a thought in the mind. So, the reprimand doesn't mean we destroy anything. It just means we're not fooled. So you can try it with words in your mouth even, like, oh, that's just a thought. That's just doubt. That's just greed. That's just fear. That's just that. So that we're not surrendering the steadiness. We're just including, like that, we relate to that in the context of that steadiness. That's what equanimity is. It's that unflappable quality of the mind that can just handle whatever shows up. Whatever shows up, we just handle it. And we handle it by understanding it's just something being known. It's just something being known. And so even if we do end up, you know, like moving our body when we thought we should sit still or getting distracted, we don't let it be the cause for the practice falling away. We just understand that's what's happening. This is how it is. And this is really understanding that our job is to include everything. That's how we water the tree. Everything's included. You can't break it. That's the thing about the practice. If you think that the practice is this, and that this over here is breaking it, then it's a fragile practice. So we have to learn this alchemy that no matter what happens, we know that in this moment, how to make it practice. Because we're just including it. Well, now it's like this. And now it's like this. Now, I could think, but you know, Mark, two, two minutes ago, or ten seconds ago, you were really caught. And now, in that moment, that's just a thought being known. But if I get seduced by that thought, then I feel I've taken this position. Now I feel I should probably punish myself, because actually I was lost. You see, and that's how the mind is. It's always the conditioned mind is so strongly conditioned to separate the mind from the moment and, in a sense, get lost in the bubble of its thoughts, the content of its thoughts, the world of thought. And the only way toward freedom is this natural process that unfolds when the mind is continuously not caught up in thought. So that's why we establish ourselves in the physicality of sitting, in the physicality of breathing. We use the body, the five senses of seeing, hearing, sensation of body, sensation of breath. We use these as a great refuge to keep coming back, to be present with, to trust. And it really gives a contrast to the strong tendency to go to thought and be seduced by thought. These thoughts are still going to happen. But now they happen 
that because of the equanimity we have with the physicality of breathing, the physicality of the body, that wise, steady, balanced attention to the body, to the breath in the body, to hearing, then when thought, memory, mind states arise, emotions arise, then they're more likely to be seen as part of the natural unfolding of all things. So that's just a thought being known. That's just doubt being known. So we can weather a lot of those storms. Sometimes those thoughts get even uh, more challenging, more provocative, the more we sit. It's like the more steady the mind is, the more quiet the mind is. It's almost as if in that relative quiet, it's like a vacuum, and it draws in all the unfinished business. Old pain, confusion, deep, old tendencies to be angry, to feel unworthy, to be doubtful, to be inflated, you know, basically anything under the sun. Whatever is there, whatever has momentum, tends to arise. But that's okay. We have to see that and not be confused by it. This is Ajahn Chah again. When starting to cultivate the serenity of tranquility meditation, don't make the mistake of trying once or twice and then giving up because the mind is is not peaceful. That's not the right way. You have to cultivate meditation over a long period of time. Why does it have to take so long? Think about it. How many years have we allowed our minds to wander astray? How many years have we not been doing tranquility meditation? Whenever the mind has ordered us to follow it down a particular path, we rushed after it to calm the wandering mind, to bring it to a stop, to make it still. A couple of months of meditation won't be enough. Consider this. When we undertake to train the mind to be at peace with every situation, please understand that in the beginning, when a defiled emotion comes up, the mind won't be peaceful. It's going to be distracted and out of control. Why? Because there's craving. We don't want our mind to think. We don't want to experience any distracting moods or emotions. Not wanting is craving. Right? So this is the important thing. So we get a little taste of calm, of steadiness, a little peace. And then something arises. And we feel so betrayed offended by that memory or that person shuffling or sneezing or whatever it is that's disturbed the mind. It feels like a personal threat. But not wanting is craving. Wanting things to develop is craving. Not wanting this to happen is craving. He goes on. He says, there we go. We crave for things to exist in a particular way because we don't understand our own mind. It can take an incredibly long time before we realize that playing around with these things is a mistake. Finally, when we consider it clearly, we see, oh, these things come because I call them. Right? That's the identification. When we're identified, we're feeding these patterns. Craving not to experience something, craving to be at peace, craving not to be distracted and agitated, it's all craving. It's all a red-hot clunk of iron. But never mind. Just get on with the practice. 
Whenever we experience a mood or emotion, examine it in terms of its impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and selfless qualities, and toss it into one of these categories. Then reflect and investigate. These defiled emotions are almost always accompanied by excessive thinking. Wherever a mood leads, thinking straggles along behind. Thinking and wisdom are two very different things. Thinking merely reacts to and follows our moods, and they, and they carry on with no end in sight. But if wisdom is operating, it will bring the mind to stillness. The mind stops and doesn't go anywhere. They're simply knowing and acknowledging what's being experienced. When this emotion comes, the mind's like this. When that mood comes, it's like that. We sustain knowing. Even if it occurs to us, hey, all this thinking, this aimless mental chatter, this worrying and judging, it's all insubstantial nonsense. It's all impermanent, unsatisfactory, and not me or mine. Toss it into one of these three all-encompassing categories and quell it, and quell the uprising. You cut it off at its source. Later when we sit meditation, it will come up again. Keep a close watch on it. Spy on it. And this is really the heart of the steadiness. We're finding a new refuge. Normally the refuge, what we trust in our mind, is this tendency, this like animal-like quality in the mind. It's vigilant in a sense, you know, it's alert in a sense, but it's ready to pounce on the bad guys, it's ready to grab and eat the good guys, this uh, uneasy, defensive, greedy little beast. And that's really so much of the condition of the mind. And we trust that, because in a sense it's taken care of us in this relative world. I mean, not really, but kind of, it's taken care of us over the years. Our greediness, our fear, our aggression, it's sort of taken care of us well enough that we made it here. <laughs> but it's, it has to be left behind. We have to find a different way of being, a different way of operating. So one way to think about that wisdom, you know, that we're going to take refuge in, is this knowing quality of the mind. So that's really what supports the steadiness of the mind. Because, you know, sometimes we get instruction instructions from teachers, you know, just sit, be present. And when we do that, we notice this beast, this defensive, aggressive, greedy beast. And being present means basically being right in the middle of that beast. And, you know, and but now because we're not so distracted, we don't like the beast, but we don't really know anything else. So it's useful to get the instruction that, you know, that whatever we're experiencing the beast to be, it's just something being known. Oh, that's just being known. So we notice a little aggressiveness in the mind. But we can remember that aggressiveness is just something being known here in the space of the mind, in the space of the present moment. That dullness, that sense of heaviness in the mind, that sense of complacency and wanting to give up and this is too hard and I don't understand it, 
that's just something being known here in the space of the mind. Thinking we're the best, thinking I got it, I figured it out, I'm probably better than everybody else. That's just something being known here in the mind. So, it's that knowing quality that puts everything in its place. It diffuses the life of these self-centered patterns. It takes the wind away from the sails. And we can be free of that hungry beast, that mean, greedy, scheming, manipulating little beast that's just done its best to survive. That's really what it's there for. To get along, to survive, to not get killed, you know, to get what we need. But it ends up being a prison for us. So the And the more we try to get out of that prison, we always use seem to need to use the beast to get away from the beast. So it never works. It's always so frustrating. You know, it's like we're greedy in this way, and then we think, God, i gotta got to get beyond this, so we get greedy in another way. You know, the way that's not that way. But it's always another way. It's just another way of getting entangled in the world. So there's something very potent about this particular instruction that we get from our teachers about taking refuge in the knowing. And this is not just the development of steadiness, it's really the development of insight. And in this sense, insight and the steadiness of mind, the balance of mind, really go hand in hand. Arjun Shah has a beautiful, I'll just end with this story from this chapter, has a beautiful image of, you know, being around in a mango orchard and, you know, initially... You know, you feel like you got to figure out a way up that tree to, or a way to shake the tree to get all the fruits down. But he said, the fruit is already falling. Your job is just to hang out under the mango tree, observe the fruit falling, notice which, which of the fruit are ripe, delicious, which are rotten. You don't have to shake the tree. You don't have to do anything. You just hang out and see what falls. And that's like this uh, nice image for the knowing. Where we're just sitting here. We don't actually have to go after experiences because where do present experiences arise? They naturally arise here in the space of the present moment, in the space of the mind. We never have to go to an object, to an experience. That's an unnecessary stress in the mind to think that I have to put my attention on an experience. Because every experience arises here in the mind. So, it may be faint, it may be clear, but whatever it is, it's here. There's no distance between the mind and the object. It's always here. And that really gives a flavor of effortlessness that's important. Because it's effortless, ultimately, because it's a natural process, and it isn't an ego-based process. It's only ego-based or self-centered processes that feel stressful, that are heavy and difficult. You know, whatever that was that blew in on Thursday night and Friday, that storm, that winter storm, you know, there was no stress. The weather wasn't stressed out by kind of making all that stuff happen, the wind and the snow and... So we can remember this teaching from weather, from nature. 
big things happen, but it's not stressful that it's happening. It's only stressful to the Minnesotans who were hoping that we'd have an early spring or something, you know, or feel burdened by having to shovel the walks or something, and then we can create problems. But we can get rid of those problems, like when you're shoveling or when you're walking home tonight or picking up after your dog or whatever you end up doing tonight, see how you can go back and forth from this uh, sense that life is effortful to nature unfolding. But to do that, to experience that freedom, we need to take refuge outside of that hungry, defensive, mean little beast. And this is why this pointing out, this instruction is so useful. How do we, how do we liberate the mind from that identification with this hungry, mean, scheming little beast? We take refuge in the knowing. So in Buddhist circles, we call that's what we mean by the Buddha. We don't mean we're taking refuge in somebody who died 2,500 years ago because <laughs> that's not going to help. <laughs> But we can take refuge in what he pointed out. Even at the time of the Buddha, when people were fascinated with him as a charismatic leader, he would tell them, he would warn them, don't get attached. If you see the Dharma, if you see this practice in your own mind, you see the Buddha. If you actually see the Buddha, you're not seeing this body, you're seeing the practice. That's what the Buddha is. So the Buddha is this awakened quality of the mind, this steady uh, wise presence that is re- taking refuge in the knowing. That's the Buddha. And the Buddha knows things as they are. And that leads to freedom. It's the not seeing things as they are that leads to all of our unskillful actions that set in motion more stress and more suffering in life. So I'll leave it here. We have about nine or eight minutes. It'd be nice to Hear from folks, maybe have some questions or comments, experiences from your own practice that seem relevant to the topic tonight. What comes to mind? Yeah, Rich, right? Rich, can you hold for one sec? Steve, would would you shut the ventilation switch off? That's the top one. And then you have to do the middle button in the on the bottom there to shut the fan off. Thanks. Well, the effort, yeah, the really good question, because when equanimity begins, when that steadiness begins to develop, it doesn't mean it's in perfect balance. And there's always, you know, as long as we're students of the path, there's always ways for a shadow to creep in. 
so that equanimity, it may be actual equanimity, but it may be tainted with fear, and that fear might be spread so evenly that it's not easy to discern. But we're using it like a spiritual bypass, holding back from light, holding back from engagement, calling it equanimity. So then, then what will arise in that, so that we're sensitive and we're somewhat equanimous, and one of the things that that sensitivity reveals is this feels a little lifeless. You know, it looks right, but it feels a little lifeless because what I hear about that the practice is enlivening and, and rich, and yet it feels a little sterile. So then that the practice is sort of, this is the great thing about this practice is it won't be perfect, but it has the tendency to illuminate what's wrong with it. So if we just stick with it, if we're really patient, it will tend to illuminate. And then we start having questions arising in the mind. I wonder if loving kindness might be useful. So there is a sort of moves in the practice. It's not just receptive moves. There are places for assertive moves. But these assertive moves, like maybe I should intentionally develop loving kindness, they come out of the receptivity, the sensitivity. And the, and the discernment that doesn't feel quite right yet. Something's off. This is not happiness. You know, it may be better than what I had, but it's not full or complete. And then we trust that, you know, whatever understanding we have, we trust that we experiment and we, we do some, bring in some loving kindness, intentionally bring the mind to that theme. You know, find ways to bring the mind to the theme of loving kindness and then we recollect it, we hold the attention there using phrases or any way that works for us basically to contemplate loving kindness or contemplate compassion or contemplate joy. And this is how we balance the mind. We have to experiment, we have to explore. We shouldn't assume that the steadiness, the clarity that we have is complete. We have to probe. Another way to do that is to go into different, bring it into different situations. So we get it on the uh, on the sitting cushion, rather, but then we go out into our daily life and we see well, what gets in the way with it out there, or we bring it into our relationships. Because the practice, whatever it is that we're developing, it's defined by being functional. So that means it's functional in any condition, in any situation. And if the practice you're developing isn't functional in different places in your life, then you want to start experimenting. You want to reflect on why. What? Why isn't it helpful in this situation? How could it, the, if this is truly a steady, balanced, clear, relaxed, loving state of mind, why would it be functional? Why wouldn't it be helping? And so we have to take a, a good look. And basically our habits will creep in. So we have to, like the, somewhere I read tonight, you know, you have to spy on it. Because, because we will, uh, the practice will get corrupted. The, the tendencies, that beast, will come back. It will reassert itself. And it will, it gets a little trained. So when it reasserts itself, it's starting to imitate the practice. It, it reasserts itself as the practice. And then we realize, oh, no, no, honey, you really have to just sit there. Eventually, you have to die. That beast has to die. That whole notion that we're operating as this defensive, hungry, scheming beast, that notion has to die. Initially, 
It just needs to be pacified so we can develop confidence in the practice. But eventually it will die through starvation. We just won't, the mind won't go to it. It knows better. And it will trust being in the knowing. Yeah, Rachel. You're not killing the part that wants. First of all, you're not. No, there's nobody killing anything. Well, like yeah. Well, like you, <laughs> <laughs> no. You're, you're, the starvation is <laughs> that, that. In a sense, the heart is just choosing. So many things already have died in our life. Think about who and what you were as a teenager. All of, a lot of those patterns, I'm assuming, have died. Right? Do you grieve them? <laughs> So there's so many, so many dynamics, patterns have already been buried. And there's just more of that, you know? So that's part of the whole life is the sloughing off with, with what's not working. Just pour yourself into them completely. And to whatever degree that that pouring yourself into it completely is tainted by the hungry beast, what I'm calling the hungry beast, then you will begin to notice that it's tainted by the hungry beast. But you don't throw out engagement with life. That's called ascetic practices. And the Buddha rejected that. That is not the way to freedom. It's like saying, well, boy, if I only weren't alive, I'd be free. <laughs> Which doesn't work, because we are alive. And so, engagement is part of life. There's no way to live without engagement. So the question is, how to tease out what is dysfunctional from the engagement? And we experiment two ways. We retreat from engagement, relatively speaking. I mean, going on retreat is still an engagement, but it's a relatively simple engagement. And that relative simplicity allows us to see things. And then the other move is the re-engagement. So we have two moves in practice. Retreating and engaging, you know, into what's complicated, into what provokes the, the hungry beast. And then retreating from what provokes the hungry beast. So that's a relatively easy place to practice. We gain some confidence. And then we go back to where you know, that where greed does get provoked and aversion does get provoked. And then we see if the wisdom that's been cultivated can match the force of that habit, the momentum of that habit. Thanks, Rachel, for the good comment. We need to, if it's quick, you can go, but just like a minute. Okay, I'm going to be quick. I find that practice diverging two different types. One being you're very up almost under a microscope uh, awareness of my breath and the other one being more of that uh, ability to step back uh, and see things holistically but don't find that I'm able to hold both of them at the same time. Mm-hmm. I was just wondering if you could speak a little to the balance between those two. Well, what I would do is get interested when you have that, that one-pointedness with the breath 
Um, besides the obvious interest in the breath in order to have that one-pointedness, you can also be interested in the qualities of the mind that are supporting the one-pointedness. So do you understand what I'm saying? So it's like you're, in a sense, you're broadening the field of awareness to include the mind that is one-pointed. And just get interested in the mind that is one-pointed and see if those qualities are wholesome. And if they are wholesome, then notice that that one-pointedness with the breath, even though it is microscopic and uh, wholesome, that in a sense the wholeness that you experience there is the same kind of wholeness we experience when the when the attention has a real breath. So this is the interesting thing about experience generally. One-pointedness, uh, the mind attending to something very specific, and the mind ex- uh, opening to all conditions, all experiences, including the whole, the freedom is the same. As long, it's really, it's not a matter of like what we're paying attention to, whether it's small or big. What matters are the qualities of the mind. Is there aversion or greed in the mind that's supporting the one-pointedness? Or is there greed or aversion in the mind supporting the more open breadth of attention? So, I don't think you need to worry about it too much, because as soon as you go into daily life, you're going to have to translate your one-pointedness into a more, because that one-pointedness doesn't really make sense so much in daily life. It can in certain activities, but generally, you know, we need that more broad comprehension of this, the present moment. So, you'll get a lot of that broad practice. And the nice thing about uh, people who have more of a tendency to be microscopic in that way is that uh, the mind can get more subtle, and so it's seeing things in a more refined, more subtle way, which is generally useful. And uh, it's often uh, supports tranquility, because it's, uh, it's like more of a retreat, retreating, or more secluded experience from things that might agitate the mind and might trigger greed and aversion when you're in that really refined space. Does that seem to help? Is it Alex? Yeah. Thanks, everyone. Let's just take a moment and relax and take a breath together before we end the evening. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.